Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. I am one of your hosts, Paige May, and my good friend and co-host, Monica, is here with us as well. How are you doing today, Monica? Hey, Paige. I'm good. I'm, I'm feeling this warmer weather. It's going to disappear in a few days, but, you know, because it's Chicago, but I'm still really happy about it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if folks took note in last week's episode, but we have beautiful new intro and outro music by the one and only Tasha. And Tasha is a born and raised Chicagoan singer, songwriter, uh, poet, uh, activist, dear friend, uh, neighbor, and we love her and we're so honored to have her music in our show moving forward. Um, But anyways, back Mm -hmm. to you, Paige. We're revisiting this significant conversation with lifelong radical and movement lawyer Bernadine Dorn. Uh, So tell us about this book she chose and what you left this conversation with. Yeah, and extra echo for Tasha. Just the music will give you all the feels. I cry a lot. It's it's a whole, it's a journey. Um, And I'm so grateful to be able to have Tasha's music on this show. Um, And this episode... Gave me so many feels. I remember it quite vividly. This was one where I was like running late and the internet wasn't working and I had to like sit on my kitchen floor and the oven was on with like the door open because it was so cold in my apartment for some reason that day. And Bernadine Doran just like, goodness. I mean, consistent to every interaction I've ever had with her just is this whirlwind of kindness and generosity and wisdom and thoughtfulness. And then just like super eccentric, just like a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful person. And this, uh, our conversation was about something that I did not expect. Like when I tell you, when we reached out to Bernie, I was like, yeah, what book would you want to do? I did not see this coming at all. Um, But it's exactly what I think people appreciate about this podcast where it's it's about the book, right? And under and getting some spark notes of these these important books for movement. But it's also about the people and learning how mm. people le- have learned and how people have mm. uh, implemented new knowledge and failure and experiences into their daily practices and co- and commitment to to revolution and struggle. And so this is about a this episode centers on a pamphlet called the question or la question. I don't have a good French accent. And it's by a French journalist named Henri, I'm forgetting his last name actually right now, who went to Algeria during the Algerian war. And it's about torture um, and about his observations of torture and his own experience of torture. And it's a very short pamphlet. It's 50 pages. It was spanned. And Bernadine read this as a high school student and at a time where she didn't really know anything about Algeria and what was going on there and wasn't someone who under recognized herself as like a part of movement but she was at the same time seeing news stories of the little rock nine and she just was like i never want to be one of those white women like screaming Mm. at these black people going to school and she talks about how like you know she read the book and then she wrote a paper about it like she was supposed to for school and that was kind of it but the way she talks about how it wasn't that you know this book immediately changed her life in mm-hmm. tangible ways, but that it more that it stayed with her. And and just like the way she talks about how that's what's so special about books is that it's not always like it gives you an immediate answer, an immediate blueprint for what to do next, mm-hmm. but that they stay with you. And then the next time and the next time, sometimes it's not even until the next time or even the next time after that, that you f- see a way to take action and you see a way to do things differently. And it was really beautiful just hearing her talk about how what this book planted in her and how her life moved differently as a result of it. It's wonderful. If you love books, I think this is an episode for the book lovers as well as the people committed to to abolition and change. So anyways, those are my feels. What about you, Monica? What what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I like I like that you call it a pamphlet and then a book because it's both, but I, and I'm going to uplift the like pamphlet zine that this is. We talk about in this episode how it was banned, but then also how people just proliferated Mm -hmm. it. People don't know about the power of the Xerox machine and how even when the government tries to ban it, it's going to still get out there. So, Mm -hmm. and I think there's power in storytelling and in books like this, especially ones that unlock stories of torture, because one, it's hard to unhear these stories of dehumanization. And it's very haunting that we will never know all of the stories of, of individuals being tortured by imperialists across the globe. And, and two, because storytelling saves lives. It, it brings public attention, right? So 
this was an incredible conversation. You know, we give Bernadine a really hefty bio intro at the top of the episode. <laughs> I fan fan girl a lot. Um, but briefly, I'll just also name that Bernadine has very deep roots in abolitionist work and from working on abolishing the juvenile death penalty successfully to now working towards abolishing life without parole. And, you know, she's part of this lineage of organizers that are working towards taking down the prison industrial complex, you know, brick by brick, piece by piece. And so I appreciated in this conversation, Bernadine talks about torture both globally and locally in Chicago as a major tool of, quote, every imperialist country time and time again, unquote, which also reminds me to to give folks a listen with care note, like there will be brief descriptions of torture and violence in this episode. So if you need to ground yourself or come back at another time, please just do what you need to do. Um, but I, I really am valuing this conversation and uh, just all of the things that Bernadine touches on both historically as a young person uh, in Chicago, you know, around the time when MLK came mm -hmm. to town and so many stories that are just like archived mm -hmm. now. Lastly, I also want to name that there's a really important exhibit in Chicago right now at the uh, DePaul Art Museum. So today is April 24th, 2022, and the exhibit goes through August 7th, 2022. Uh, and this exhibit is called Remaking the Exceptional Tea, Torture and Reparations, Chicago to Guantanamo. And it's curated by my dear friend and fellow movement artist, Aaron Hughes uh, and Amber Ginsberg. And this, this exhibit marks 20 years since the opening of the U.S.'s extralegal prison in Guantanamo Bay. And it examines, you know, local and international state violence and the creative resistance that, that just like turns it all mm -hmm. on its head, right? And there's artwork in this exhibit by survivors of Guantanamo, uh, torture survivors, artists, activists, uh, collectives, you know, with long-term commitments to creating visions of justice. Uh, there's work by, uh, shout out to Chicago Torches, Torture Justice Memorials, Invisible Institute, Sarah G, uh, Damon Locks, and, and so many more. So check it out. Um, think of this episode as like a companion piece to this exhibition or this exhibition as homework after the episode. But either way, just check it out. Um, back to you, Paige. Take us into this episode. Yeah, I mean, we're so glad that you're here and we hope you find some knowledge and some wisdom and uh, some new truth in this episode. And with that, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt. We must disobey. We must agitate. We must escalate. We must break. We must create. We must abolish. We must transform. Okay. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago. This is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. I am your co-host, Monica Trinidad, and we are sitting here virtually with one of the coolest, nicest, most brilliant women in Chicago, the one and only Bernadine Dorn. Thank you so much for making time Woo! to be with us here today, Bernadine. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. My pleasure. So I'm going to give our listeners a quick intro to who you are, and then I'll pass the mic uh, to, to Paige um, and then to you to say a little bit more. Uh, so for those listening who haven't had the pleasure of learning about the critical work of Bernadine Dorn, Bernadine is a lifelong radical feminist, a former member of the 1960s anti-war organization Students for a Democratic Society, uh, arrested dozens of times by the Chicago Police Department for your radical and powerful activism and organizing. Uh, in the late 60s, followed by co-founding the Weather Underground, a radical militant organization that splintered from SDS in the early 1970s. Uh, you went underground for several years. I will say you are not the only guest 
this season who has been on the FBI's most wanted list at one point in their lives. And you came out of hiding in 1980 to turn yourself in, but mostly all of the charges were dropped due to COINTELPRO, which we are all familiar with. Your partner is the wonderful Bill Ayers, who we've also had on the podcast talking about his book, Demand the Impossible. Uh, You are the founder and former director of the Children and Family Justice Center at Northwestern's University School of Law, currently a retired law professor and actually somebody that I've really admired since I first learned about your politics when I was in college at UIC in the early 2000s, which is where I first met Bill. And, um, you know, we've been in struggle together in various capacities over the last several years. um, And I have two notable moments with you that I wanted to quickly share before I pass the mic and, and we jump into this book. One is probably one you might not remember, but it was maybe maybe 2005, and I just got involved in anti-war organizing on my college campus, UIC, and our group, which was part of this like revival SDS network, um, our group, our group's faculty advisor was, of course, was Bill. Uh, and um, I guess he invited us over to your house in Hyde Park, um, your old house, right, uh, for a barbecue. And of course, my younger self, I had already watched the Weather Underground documentary a million times. I had already read Fugitive Days by Bill. And so I was like super geeked out to like even be in your presence. Um, but then fast forward to 2019, and we were literally locked arms together blockading the elevators at City Hall during one of the No Cop Academy City Council meetings, um, where we were collectively demanding a halt to the $95 million police academy that the city still wants to build in West Garfield Park, but has not yet. And they were trying to build that. What year was that? 2017? 20, I think it was 2017. Has not been built yet. It's amazing. Um, that's people power. So we were basically, we were ready to get arrested together, but uh, we didn't. And one day, though, it could hopefully still happen that we uh, get arrested together. <laughs> Paige, do you want to add anything to my really long <laughs> fangirling intro? Yo, I I mean, I just want to say that I, I first heard about you or met you and someone was like, oh, that's Bernadine Dorn. From my, and I'm like, who's that? Like, Weather Underground. And I didn't know what that was, which was good because it meant that I think I would have been even more like in awe and unable to communicate <laughs> or use words if I had really understood. Um, but and instead, I was just struck by how kind you were. Like you from the minute I met you, you were just one of the like most uh, exuberant, happy, uh, generous f- people that I, I've ever met and, and, and have met in this in movement work. And I, uh, I remember going to your house. We were about to go to Geneva for We Charge Genocide. We were going to be arguing, right, about right what the police are doing is torture, which I think weaves into this conversation we're about to have. And I remember just, yeah, being in your house and uh, how smart you were, how many, uh, and, and and also just what a badass you were. And I'm like, who are, who is this person? <laughs> this is amazing. And and again, also just uh, uh, a thing that has been consistent throughout my getting to know you has been just your generosity and your love and support of young people and of movement and of struggle. Uh, and and so you know, along the way, I've started to. Learn more about the the work that you've done and it's again it can fill pages and books and and that is remarkable but also just want to give a shout out to just what a wonderful human you are a real real gem in in Chicago and in the world and so I'm excited is there anything though that we've missed that you want to lift up about the work that you've done or otherwise can you tell us more about why you do what you do Uh, because we'd love to hear your motivation and what gives you hope I just want to tell you something funny right now that you'll both appreciate I think because you've um partly the two of you doing this has stirred up, you know, memories. And I, you know, don't remember as well as I used to. So sometimes the memories come at me for strange reasons in the middle of the night. Um, (laughs) And uh, then I picked a book that is very odd, but I think you said a book that changed your life or influenced your life. So I didn't want to pick kind of what I thought were the obvious ones and others have already done. <laughs> I picked a very obscure book, actually, but that came my way when I was a senior in high school, to kind of by accident, and opened up many doors to me. But it reminded, talking with you or thinking that I was going to talk to you and that you would be interested, uh, reminded me that um, I had this experience right after we turned, after I turned myself in and we were living in New York with three little kids where I fell in um, Mm -hmm. or I worked my way in to friendship with these three older women who had worked, were in very different fields, education, law, and um, psychiatry. And they had worked together 
over 40 years, um, you know, before World War, well before, in, during the Depression, they met up in high school. Anyway, they worked together uh, around a huge variety of issues. And it made me, the fact that they were willing to become my friend, I mean, uh, it stunned me that you could have a friend across 30 years or 40 years. You made me think about it just then because I feel like that, you know, it's possible. You know, you can't always predict these things. It's different than a grandma or a family member, you know, but you, you stirred my memories. That's really what I want to say. And I had this, and then it happened again when I moved to Chicago because I fell in with two older women. It, was, it wasn't a group in the same way, but who, um, I just think it's always a great idea to jump across ages and to have somebody that you're talking to and communicating with and looking at views of the world, but also maybe even becoming friends across a generation. So you opened up a flood of memories for me. <laughs> Thank you for that. My name is Bernadine Dorn. and I um, am retired now, but I, I worked uh, for uh, almost 30 years at Northwestern Law School. Quite a lucky turn of events for me because um, we had just moved back to Chicago. Uh, after being in New York for a decade. And I uh, got to start a center called the Children and Family Justice Center and hired a bunch of people who wanted to represent children. Um, we decided to focus on kids in very serious circumstances. Um, and uh, so we started representing kids who were um, facing the death penalty in the country. Uh, and I, I didn't even know these things existed, but of course, once you look, you see. Uh, we spent many years um, abolishing the juvenile death penalty. The United States was one of the last countries in the world where that was legal, where it was actually the law and okay to execute somebody for something they did under the age of 18. Um, so that, that threw me into a whole world of criminal justice activism and reform. So as well as representing kids in court, we took on campaigns, really. Uh, and after successfully in the Supreme Court abolishing the juvenile death penalty, we took on life without possibility of parole, which is another kind of death, as we call it, a, a way in which people are sentenced to die in prison. And no matter who they become or who they are, uh, or how much the victim families wanted or under any circumstance, wrong, wrongful convictions, evidence, you are going to die in prison. And so that's been something that took longer than the six years that the juvenile death penalty took. We're still at it. Um, but several thousand people have been released um, who had that sentence. So we're kind of pulling people out, uh, not quite one at a time, but sometimes one at a time. And they, of course, have formed their own organization, Incarcerated Children's Action Network, ICANN, um, which, you know, has become just a star and has now merged with the campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, which is what I was involved in, and, and is taking over the leadership of the campaign. So I, I mainly now, what do I do? I, I, uh, I teach one month a year um, at a college in Maine, a small college in Maine. So the students I'm teaching are very young. And I teach uh, international human rights and women, children, and gender and human rights. Very long title. So that's been fun, both because then I have to keep up in these areas. So I do more research and find out what's happening. Um, and because they're so young. <laughs> and for me, that's... Um, you know, been a challenge. They, you know, they were born, uh, you know, 18 years ago. And uh, so their references, my references, <laughs> which mainly were in the last century, uh, don't apply for them. And so, it, you know, it's, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I have a teaching moment now still. Uh, and uh, life is good. I'm so curious to hear what keeps you in struggle. You have done so much um, 
and you know I I'm so tired and it's only been like 10 years for me you know um and and you I mean you know and and the the uh, intensity of, of the, what you have done for so long and and so I'm, I'm curious to just hear why what 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 keeps you going I don't know the why but I do know that imperialism and racism are not done capitalism <laughs> is not done and mm-hmm. so even though you know I certainly thrown myself into the struggle um in that sense we you know we're going to be handing the struggle off to your generation and others i'm sorry to say with some you know some glorious moments and some chipping away but definitely not uh you know being able to turn the tide entirely so uh you know i think be, I, for yeah so the, so i feel you know that our accomplishments so far have been modest but are part of a long line, a long thread, a long red ribbon that goes back in time. And I'm, I'm myself honored and proud to be part of that tradition. I'd like to see a few more serious, solid victories. <laughs> I'd like mm-hmm, to see right. Cook County Jail closed. That's been one of my dreams for the last four or five years. You know, instead yeah. we've not we, but the bigger we, the people who followed me at the Children and Family Justice Center on the verge of closing the last uh, of the juvenile correctional facilities in Illinois. That's very exciting. We're down to a campaign they call the final five. Yeah, isn't it great? I mean, mm-hmm. so, um, but we have so much to do, as you know. The the inequalities, the the, you know, the hatred of women that continues mm-hmm. or has accelerated in the last five years and you know and the response um which is a fresh new response and a new start with new people so i'm very excited about the times we live in and uh as long as i have uh the ability i'm planning to be part of it i'm yes. waiting for you to call another sit in so i can sit next to you then <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to so haul me up <laughs> I'm so I'm so ready for that. So the book we're talking about today is uh, La Question by Henry Eleg. Uh, I hope I said that correctly. Published, yeah, Ali, Ali, Ali. Okay, uh, published in 1958. Um, this book is all about torture in Algeria during the war for independence in Algeria. Um, and this book was censored, this book was banned, and every other repressive tactic you can think of was imposed on uh, this book and, and its author. So what led you to read this book? You mentioned that you read this book in high school. Um, what did it mean to you at that time, and, and, and what does it still mean to you? Well, I, I had such an amazing time rereading it. Uh, I had a teacher who only lasted for one year at my suburban high school. He was pushed out by the John Birch Society the next year. His name was John Paul Jones. He he um, suggested, I was looking for a senior topic to write about, and he suggested this book and the Algerian conflict. I had no idea. Uh, you know, Algeria, a country in Africa, um, French imperialism, torture. Why am I reading about torture? That's the most horrible thing. One of the most horrible things I can think of to read about. Um, but I have to give credit to him who handed me this book. And I wrote a paper long since lost, thank goodness, about this. Um, but I'm now reading it and thinking about, of course, the Chicago torture campaign, the campaigns against torture in Chicago, uh, the fact that I began teaching a class at Northwestern Law School on torture. Uh, the par- I called it uh, torture, the paradigm, and we read about torture uh, by the British of the Irish prisoners. We read about Argentina. We read about um, Chile, South Africa, uh, and and um, I, I, you know, to me that was um, a very exciting part of the anti-colonial struggle. I mean, the empire. It does not yield easily, as you know. And one of the, their major tools turns out to be torture. Uh, and almost every imperial country over time uses it again and again and again. So the fact that, um, that we live in a mother country, as the Panthers used to call it, you know, uh, uh, on that as a white person, I'm a mother country radical, which is what the Panthers lovingly called us. Um, <laughs> 
you know, makes you see what your obligation is in a particular light. And for reasons that I just reread and understood in a different light, uh, Henri Alleg was that kind of white person, Frenchman, (laughs) working in Algeria, running a radical newspaper in Algeria, allied with the Algerian Liberation Forces, um, but definitely not himself an Algerian, who... Uh, was seized by the authorities there, the French authorities there, uh, and subjected to one month, just one month of extreme physical torture uh, and terror, really. And he had the wherewithal to write about it um, and to uh, write about it immediately so that it was extremely vivid and detailed, um, as he did. And then it was published because he was a you know a publisher <laughs> and then Sartre and others uh of great international renown seized upon it as part of the struggle against French imperialism but i think rereading it made me you know think about not just the abu ghraib torture and it made me think about how many people are still at guantanamo why isn't guantanamo closed and it made me think about you know the chicago police torture victims and their fight for justice and freedom and still the Chicago Police Department with its evil, you know, and secretive methods. And as I say, Cook County Jail. So what the hell is going on there? How can there be thousands of people locked up during this COVID thing? Why can't we close it down? Why can't we stop it? So all that. I really appreciate how you what you were able to speak to what it meant to you at the time or what brought you to it, but also sort of it's the ways that it's that the themes have continued to show up um, and are still very much relevant to what's happening today. And can you, before we dive into the book, can you tell us more about what you know about what happened when it was released? My understanding is that it was banned. Um, It seems like it was uh, a very uh, controversial book or pamphlet when it was came out. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, it was banned. It was definitely banned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, did I hold it up before? Can you see what it looks like? This is a new edition of it. But it, now if you take out the two introductions, the two lengthy introductions, it's, you know, a 50, it's 50 pages with lots of white around them. So it could be much less than that. It, it's a very short book or a large pamphlet. I think because it was seized upon by the Communist Party and the left in France at the time, who were opposed to, you know, the Algerian war, it was always a war because of the oppression and suppression there. Um, so it it um, was distributed clandestinely. But like those kind of things, you know, it then gets reprinted and reprinted and published and talked about and written about. When we were underground, I want to compare our struggle to the the Algerian struggle for self-determination, but we published a book called Prairie Fire when we were underground and had it distributed. It appeared simultaneously in 10 different cities and then other people republished it and it got, you know, bigger and bigger outlet. So that kind of um, relationship between people working in different different methods, with different methods, but agreeing on a core issue is something that I've I've just always admired. And so I learned a little bit more this time around when it had hefty introductions than I knew when I first read it. The recent book, um, which I haven't read, but I've read about a good bit, by a woman named Zora uh, Drif, D-R-I-F, and it's called Inside the Battle of Algiers. And it's, you know, it's late to the party. She wrote it as an old woman, now a survivor of this struggle. Uh, but it's about the, the women who played major roles, not just carrying things into the Battle of Algiers, as we think of it from the movie. Uh, weapons and bombs and things like that, but actually in organizing and being a leader in the struggle. So just want to mention a recent memoir about this same issue. That's awesome. And I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, 
So yeah, let's let's dive into this book. Um, and also, I was um, I'm under the impression that this book was also considered a bestseller at the time of its release, uh, before it was banned and censored, and it was able to get at least like you were saying uh, clandestinely at least like sixty thousand copies out into the hands of the people. Um, what was the author talking about in this book, um, and what was the message he was trying to emphasize? It's very hard to read about torture. Yeah, when I first read it, I was shocked to my toes. Um, and now having lived through or and taught torture and read about torture and, and lived through the uh, victims in Illinois of the Chicago torture, police torture scandals, I know more. But, uh, but it's, I, I think it's important to read um, because torture is, you know, one and on a micro level, one person touching and putting their hands on another person's body. It, you know, it's, when you say it that way, it's an intimate relation to violence and to struggle. And here's the other thing that's astonishing about it. So he's tortured for a month and held in this horrible place. He's passing Algerians who are the main victims of this torture as a, as a Frenchman. And they some of them recognize him. I'll read you a little passage about it. But he's, after the first 24 hours, if you don't talk, the first 24 hours he's being tortured is the critical time because that's when they would capture other people because he gave them information. After that, it's just the torture. It's just the incredible insistence of... Uh, colonial power and imperial power determined to degrade and practice and overcome resistance right in their in their very hands and in their very face so it's got that dimension that's both global and lasts until now and is also you know very specific and personal we know this from the chicago torture victims i think in a very powerful way um, and their telling and retelling of the story uh, of what it meant to them. And the combination of, you know, giving information or breaking or not being perfect, not being as perfect as you wish you had been. Anyway, that's all in here in this short book. And a very, very interesting. Made me furious when I realized when I was reading, when I was thinking about talking to you, not so much when I was reading it. Uh, you know, that there's still people in Guantanamo, it, you know, and therefore hundreds of people working there and therefore millions of our tax dollars going to keeping this hellhole that should just be shut down right now open. And uh, why? Why is it going on? So, yeah, my mind is wanders around these various, you know, horrible things uh, that the United States has been involved in and yeah. is still involved in, really. Yeah. And so it so just so I'm understanding right in this book, he's not only is he talking about torture during the Algerian war, but he's talking about the torture that he experienced himself. Oh, yes. He was he was seized. He was um, tortured for 30 days. He goes up and down. I mean, the torture is, you know, horrible. It's the same things we learned about, but very specific and very low tech. So you know, holding matches to his nipples, holding, burning his eyes, you know, a water torture, you know, holding his nose and his head underwater. Um, but a lot of electric shock stuff and, and beatings, just beating him, you know, until he collapses. Yeah, it, it, he, um, when he leaves, you know, he's kind of amazed, and you are when you end the book, that it was just 30 days, just 30 days. It was 30 days. It was every minute and every night of 30 days. And, you know, the shifts would come in and different people would take over. And again, he's the one with privilege there. You know, he's the Frenchman. The Algerians, you know, he sees women go by, he sees uh, men and children, um, and just when he's being transferred or taken, thrown into a cell. So you think about 
you know, other places in the world where this goes on, let's say Israel. I mean, we can think of many places where uh, torture is, I don't want to say routine, because it's almost always partly secret. It's got this great relationship between being flagrantly open and secret, you know, and it, and so it really did make me think again about how we haven't, how much of our tax dollars and how much of the U.S. allies, uh, and in and, and not going far from home, as I said, just in our own prisons and jails, cells, and police stations, how much of this continues to go on, and and how much is it accepted, acceptable. People are not fired for it. You know, it's part of the machinery that goes with power and making other people powerless. I have, I'm thinking of two different questions. I guess the first is, to put it simply, is does he, is is it just him telling talking about what what happened um, or does he, or maybe in the intro, talk about what he thought it meant? Like, it seems like torture is a tool of colonialism. Like, it, this is being done by colonists. That seems important, right? And I heard you say at one point, like, you know, that it, it was, you know, painful, but also about degradation. And so I, does he speak at all about the larger project of colonialism that this is happening in? Or what did you make of that, about what torture is, is – not just because people are twisted and evil, but there's a there's uh, it's about power, right? It's not. You could say it has connections to the, you know, journalists. The U.S. has tortured and put in dungeons and silenced and is threatening, you know, threatening uh, with charges that lead to the death penalty. But he's a well-known person, both in France and in Algeria, is a Frenchman. And so um, he's very aware of the fact that if he resists and if he then remembers enough to tell the story in a powerful way, it will have, it could have an impact on the silence of French people in the face of what's being done in their name in Algeria, in another country. And this is very important because he, at one point, Sartre says in the introduction, you know, of course, when France was occupied by the Germans, ah, vive la France, you know, we were willing to be tortured. We were, many people were tortured to death by the Germans. And we have this great tradition of resistance and fighting back and blah, blah, blah. That's how we thought of ourselves just 10 years before. France has become the Germans, and there's silence in the land. That's kind of the the global framework in which Henri Lege and, and Sartre and Camus and others are all operating, right? Simone de Beauvoir. They're in a, a country that they feel has is resting on a certain past and not uh, owning up to what they're spending, you know, billions of dollars and thousands of French occupiers suppressing another people's right to independence and freedom. And and it, of course, has the color line in it in a very powerful way. So I, I, I think that's the, that was the sh- how they made it an anti-war uh, and an anti-colonial, anti-racist pamphlet (laughs) that, you know, became a a book, sort of, that became a a cry that got a megaphone. So I can, I can just imagine you in high school, uh, like reading this and and then, you know, writing, you know, a report on this. And then like, and then what did you do? Like, is, was that when you became like, no, (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I was sad in high school in in his class. Did you did you ever have maps that pull down in your classroom, big uh-huh. giant maps of the world and everything, you know? And I always was, when I was bored, which was often, I was always looking at the maps and trying to figure out, you know, Africa and this and that. Algeria, wow, what a location, you know? Very close to Europe, but not. And completely, um, you know, at the top of Africa. And here's this huge continent, and all I know about it is a little teeny bit about Egypt and that's way over there. <laughs> you know, for me, I was 
very, very, uh, well, naive doesn't even say it. I was poorly educated. I knew almost nothing about politics in the world. I was really just waking up. I, I had seen on television the Little Rock Nine being met by screaming white crowds. And I would say that was one of the first things that I don't think I ever said anything about it. I didn't ask anything about it. I didn't challenge my parents about it. But I thought, you know, I'm never going to be that white woman spitting at these kids trying to walk to class. Elizabeth Eckford, my age exactly, trying to walk into a school that she had every right to be in. So I was uh, just really waking up. I have to say I was very, very naive. So uh, I didn't do anything about it. I wrote a paper, Lord knows what it said. But I did remember it. I did remember it. And I, in that sense, it didn't change my life that day. <laughs> I didn't have a eureka moment. I think that's what books do sometimes. They, you know, they embed themselves in you. And the next time and the next time, and finally you say, I'm, I have to do something. For me, that, as you might know, it was years later when Dr. King came to Chicago and I was a law student here and I I was like, okay, I didn't go south, didn't have the courage to do it. My boyfriend didn't want me to do it. I yielded. He's coming here. I'm going. You know, so I think people change in complicated ways over a lifetime and sometimes very slowly. <laughs> sometimes it takes you know, a set of circumstances. But at some point, if you've missed a few chances to change yourself and change your life, when the next one comes along, you're like, damn it, this one I'm doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So for me, that was Dr. King coming to Chicago. And I was like, I'm getting a bunch of law students and we're going to go meet with them and see what we can do. It, not, not much, but enough to put me on a different trajectory. And I think that this book did that for many people in France at the time, not just for the high-powered intellectuals, but actually for the French people. Look what you're doing. You know, you want to say you're the, you're the resistors, you're the Nazi fighters, you're the fascist fighters, you're the resistance. And it's true, you paid it, we paid a terrible price. But now this is being done in our name very important for every country in the world to wrestle with this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I'm thinking, I mean, everything you're saying is making me think about the power of narrative and the power of telling stories and telling your own story and telling the story for people who are not able to tell, you know, their stories and how critical that is in our organizing, um, in our organizing and in our daily lives. And I'm thinking about, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about so much and especially because I, I, I got a lot of my own organizing experience with zines and making zines and telling my stories around identity and putting it out there because I know that I'm not the only one experiencing it, right? There are other people experiencing things and then once other people, it's it kind of like, it's like a snowball effect, right? And then it's like, you cannot then that narrative is out there and you cannot, you can't ignore it. It's out there. You can't ignore these stories of torture, right? You couldn't. And that was the power of the, the fight for reparations in, in Chicago is these narratives were out there by not only by their survivors, but by their mothers. And you just couldn't, you couldn't ignore it. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm wondering what your what has been the, the role of narrative in, in your organizing and in your life? Um, I know we don't have a Bernadine Dorn, you know, autobiography or, or memoir yet. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, just wondering what your thoughts are on. on yeah. How narrative has played a role in, in your own organizing. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely important. You know, in addition to um, the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth, which I'm involved in. I've been a founding member of Palestine Legal as an organization here. Lucky me, you know, grew up, uh, our kids grew up with the Khalidi family as our close family friends. And we had dinner, their family and our family moved from New York to Chicago the same year. Um, and we each had three kids, each had three blonde kids with Arabic names because we had ended up naming our kids, you know, Zaid Malik and Chesa came to us with his name. So 
we laughed about that and became good family friends. And so our kids grew up together. So for me, like being able to play a small role in the development of this organization that is standing up for the right of everybody, Palestinian Americans, but really everybody to uh, oppose the occupation of Palestine and oppose American support for Israel has been one of those kind of issues that I think is very, is, has similar echoes. Certainly torture is part of that um, and incarceration of children and, uh, you know, interrogation of children. And I don't know, have either of you ever visited Israel? Have you been to Palestine? Yeah, it's a, it's, it, you know, it's so visual everywhere. It's just so right in front of you. Um, the wall, the separate highways, the separate roads, the checkpoints, the what occupation means, just what occupation means. And I'm sure that's, I have no idea what it really meant in Algeria, but I'm sure that's something like what it means. And how does you, how do you bring that? One thing is how do you organize the resistance there? But the other is how do you bring that reality to, you know, other people? in the mother country, say, um, or in the country that is, is uh, carrying out uh, the, the cruelty and the viciousness by its resources, by its money, by its training, all those other kinds of factors, even if not doing it exactly themselves. So I, th- I think it's with us, you know, from our own prisoners here in the United States and, and from the continuation of being an imperial power. You could say the same thing about the United States' role in, in, in many other countries. I won't go into them because I'm not good enough. Um, I am su- surprised at how emotional I'm feeling right now um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, like, this is hard. Like, we're talking about torture. Um, and uh, But also what you had said uh, a question or two ago about how sometimes we learn – about a thing and we don't always immediately do something about it, you know, and that, um, and, and I, I love books and I love stories. And for, like for me, um, when I was in high school, uh, Invisible Children, which is a very problematic project by these white dudes, um, like I won't defend it, but yeah, but just like I, it was important to me as a high school student. And I think about it a lot. And, and it, it, the way you talked about how, uh, books, I think you said embolden themselves in you. I can't remember the, I'm going to go back, but I, I, I just, yeah, they change you. These stories change you. Um, and, and luckily I, luckily I came, I, I, I fell and stumbled into communities where people were asking me to help and giving me a next step and giving me a next best thing to do. Um, so that's my personal, I'm just like feeling a lot around that. Um, because sometimes I get mad at how, we know things are messed up and there's not enough people doing it now that they know. And it's like, yeah, but I don't, yeah. Anyway, so that's something that is on my mind and heart. I I always think that Brian Stevenson, who I had the great luck of working with, you know, in this, these years when we were trying to abolish the juvenile death penalty and then extreme sentences for youth, but his simple word of saying being, put yourself proximate to the problem Mm you know, is another way of saying what Dr. King often said, you know, you don't have to know what to do (laughs) in order to put yourself close to a problem. And you don't even have to debate, you know, the, the talking heads for hours and hours to think what's the most important of all these various problems that we have. You know, is it, is it gender violence? Is it, is it racial violence? Is it, does it have to be both at the same time? You put yourself proximate to something and then you figure out if you can be useful in any way. And I mean, picture me at the age of whatever I was, 26, out in, in Garfield Park where Dr. King's headquarters were and wearing an armband that said legal. I knew nothing. I was of no help to anyone who was in legal trouble. Believe me. But they liked the idea, the organizers there, half of them from the South who had been with Dr. King or SNCC in the South, and half of them 
you know, from the neighborhood in Garfield Park on the west side of Chicago, working in that office. And, you know, they weren't saying to me, you know, go out and give speeches. No, <laughs> not at all. But it, after they gave speech every night in an apartment building that was substandard living and, and no, you know, no hot water and broken windows and no locks on the doors and gouging rents, you know, they meant that I could say with the only the authority of my armband on me, you know, if you all decide together to withhold your rent, we'll help you create an escrow account and then we'll prevent you from being evicted. Wow, what a strategy. I wasn't doing those other parts, but I was, you know, we had groups of lawyers who wanted to be in the court, single landlord tenant courtroom downtown where everybody was being evicted every 30 seconds for non-payment of rent. Um, or, you know, doing other pieces of the struggle here, speaking, you know, in the churches each night. But I could make the connection that if you do this, the network of us working here under the leadership of these folks will prevent you from being evicted. And we more or less did. And the one eviction I witnessed, I've written about since, but, uh, you know, as somebody was evicted and we all ran out there, to stop it on a hot July day, somebody standing next to me said, would you hold my coat? And walked forward and I, I looked and it was Muhammad Ali. Okay, so how did he get there? I have no idea. I'd never seen him before out there in the summer. He walked up, he picked up the kitchen table that the sheriffs had just brought down from this family. He picked it up and, he, and they <laughs> had their mouths hanging open. Um, and, and he just picked it up and walked past them up the stairs. So then five more people came and 20 more people came and everybody picked up clothing or kitchen utensils or chair or something and put them back in their apartment. I mean, you, you just don't know, you know, until you're in motion and then things happen. I don't know. When Dr. King came to Chicago, did he meet with Muhammad Ali or with the nation? I, I have no idea. I still don't know till this day. But these things, everybody's working at making the connections that will matter. And sometimes, sometimes when you need it, they matter. <laughs> and they're right there and they work. Now, you know, I'm thinking a lot about how on the Lit Review podcast, we have, you know, people who talk about books that... Um, you know, they would recommend till the end of time. They're like, everyone needs to read this book. And then sometimes we have people who are like, you don't need you don't need to read this book. <laughs> there were some gems in it. And we'll talk about the gems here, but you don't need to read it. And then there's other times where, you know, like you were saying, you know, sometimes sometimes a book can speak to us and at a time in our lives when we need it and hits us and impacts us in a way that uh that, you know, means something to us, maybe not at that moment, but way later in life. Um, so the question is, do you recommend that, you know, organizers today read this book? And, uh, and if so, uh, is there anything you would also recommend folks read maybe in addition to it or alongside of it or like in companionship with it? I think it is, you know, if it was a real long, heavy, fat book, I would might say no. Because, but I think that, um, I mean, I'm going to read and then I'll, I'll tell you after I've read it, you know, the, uh, the woman who's now published a book, I'm going to read hers and, and I'm going to do a little bit more about, you know, how Algerian independence went off course once it was seized finally. Um, yeah, Zora Drift's memoir, uh, Inside the Battle of Algiers. I think it's important to read. <laughs> I think you can, you know, books that you don't grab you and you are struggling with, put them aside, you know, put them on the lower shelf next to your bed and maybe you'll get to them and maybe you won't. I was thinking that this year I was going to reread Toni Morrison and I was going to go through one after the other because it, those books had such a big impact on me as they were coming out and I, I'd like to read them again because they surely survive as great literature. Um, but, you know, I think when people say read this or don't read this, but it, it, I learned something, 
I think it's a great um, gift that you're giving by doing a show like this. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to go now back and find out what people are recommending to read because you need to get your sources from lots of different people. You know, our kids recommend things to us. That's, you know, great. Um, very helpful. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you decide, I don't know if I told you this, but my son, my oldest son and I decided uh, one year that we reread all of Dickens and we read all of Dickens. And then when I was down after surgery, um, he came and he said, and people were bringing books and he said, do something that you'll remember, you know, don't read all these books that other people bring. I said, like what? And he said, I don't know, you know, reread Tolstoy. So I did. I mean, I think you, in other words, I don't think there's exactly a book you're going to miss that is certainly you two won't, that is really important for everybody to read. But reading all the time as part of your life, you know, every day, every other day, it, it certainly is. And I, I, I feel very strongly about that. For me, it's, you know, sometimes just murder mysteries and fun. So I confess to those kind of addictions too. But, you know, the read, the passion for reading is something I hope you're digging deeply into with your people because it's, it's a lifetime gift. And the, the, the multiple uh, dimensions of letter, the way books are coming out <laughs> um, and, the, you know, the merger of comics and, and all kinds of art forms in uh, poetry with this kind of book is extremely important too. You know, I think of e viewing and you know people right in our in our uh, hometown who you know have found a, a huge audience, has written books before this, and then finds huge audience um, in the world of comics too. I had a flashback to when I was little and we used to do this thing in elementary school. It was called Stop, Drop, and Read. And it was a week where at any point in time, there might be like this alarm that would go off. Well, you would get a book at the start of the week. That was my favorite thing about it because we didn't have, like I grew up in rural Vermont where there weren't big libraries. And so it was like, yeah. And, and I loved books. Like when my, I got a date, my dad let me skip school one day because he was he's in construction and they were renovating a library and it was one of my favorite days as a child I got to spend all day in the library and like my dad brought me like muffins and stuff I felt so <laughs> fancy anyways it was great <laughs> yeah and I just I wish that yeah I, I want to like take what you just said about your love of reading and like send that to children whatever whoever's doing stop drop and read still I want to be like here's a commercial from Bernadine Dorn. <laughs> that was so moving. That's a great story. And you know, my father, who had no higher education, took me when I was six or seven to the public library and asked them to give me a card And in, in Rogers Park. Mm -hmm. And I can remember. And then we'd go, you know, every, maybe it was Saturday morning, something like that, and return the books back in. It would have been horrible for him to know that people don't turn books back <laughs> on time <laughs> or get fined for it and, you know, get to take other books out. So that kind of a thing that you can do, you know, with people around you, elders or children or anybody is another gift and fighting for our public libraries and mm -hmm. libraries in every neighborhood is mm -hmm. a space where you can, you know, do programming and agitate as well as, as, uh, you know, have children reading together and talking about books. So that's something when you cultivate it, it's it's a lifelong habit. It's very yeah. exciting. So then we close each episode with our guest reading a favorite quote or passage from the book. So I'm going to hand it over to you and you can just close this out however you want. Okay, I'm reading you toward the end of this question uh, and toward the end of the month that I spent in prison. He's talking about how he would be pushed down the stairs or kicked down the stairs or taken down the stairs by his guards. And then he says, I would often pass Arab prisoners in the corridor on the way back to their collective dungeon or cell. Some of them knew me from having seen me at political rallies organized by the paper, the, the paper he put out. Um, others knew my name. 
I was always naked to the waist and still marked by the bruises I had received, my chest and hands covered in bandages. They understood that, like themselves, I had been tortured, and they greeted me in the passage. Have courage, brother. In their eyes, I read a solidarity, a friendship, and such complete trust that I felt proud, and particularly proud because I was a European, to be among them. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about a book that has shaped their organizing work. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionists, cultural workers, and cat mamas who love nerding out on books and creating spark notes for our movements. Production this season is by Benji Russellberg. Intro music is by David Ellis with production by Ari Mejia and social media support from Alicia Camel. If you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you like our podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help widen our reach. Financial support for the production of this podcast season is thanks to the Field Foundation of Illinois and our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the lit review. Keep reading. Thank you.